When I say an angel, in your own head right now, think about that. What is an angel? So if you had to write an essay, because I'm an English teacher, and that's what I'd have you do. If you had to write an essay, what would your answer be? A short one paragraph, don't worry, I'll make it too long. If it was a one paragraph answer, what would it be in your mind? What is an angel? I think a good definition that we should start with, and I'm going to borrow from Wayne Grudem here, is this. Angels are created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence, but without physical bodies. And so that's a big important thing because often when we think of angels, we think of them with what? Bodies. Okay? So we right away, we're going to challenge that notion in regards to it being a body in the sense of flesh and blood. Okay? So we don't have angels in the sense of flesh and blood like humans. They are separate from us in that regard. So, what are angels? Well, first question I have for you, are angels eternal or created? Hopefully you're saying created, right? They are a created creature. They are not from the beginning of time to the end of time. That would be God alone. In Nehemiah 9.6, he says, You alone are God. You've made the heavens, the heavens of heavens with all their hosts. So we know that Jesus is the creator of all things, and angels fall under that. And so already we have a clear distinction between angels and the triune God. And this is an important fact to remember because many of the occults that operate today teach that Jesus is a lesser angel, right? He's an angel. He's not actually God. He's an angel, particularly thinking about Jehovah's Witnesses. And so we want to remind ourselves that angels have a beginning, and that's one of the reasons it's important to remember. They are not eternal, and to say they're eternal is to equate them with God, and that is a problem that we run into with the occults. And so they are certainly created, and also angels is particularly a catch term for us. Um, the Bible doesn't give us much detail into these certain things. And so, for example, if my son were to run in here right now and he said, Dad, there's a bug outside— what is he talking about? We don't know. We know it's a, usually an insect, and sometimes mom might walk out, and it might be actually a snake or a frog or a toad, right? Kids can mislabel things. But if you think about a bug, it can range from a butterfly to a worm to a spider, okay? All these different things are bugs, but we would know that they're not all the same, and they're not even the same insect families. And so the reason I say this is because it has not been illuminated to us what angels all may be. And so when thinking of angels, we want to remember and remind ourselves that this is not a distinctive term in terms of a particular type of being, but potentially just a simple terminology for a spiritual being that resides in the spiritual realm. And so some of the names that we're applied to angels throughout scripture are sons of God, holy ones, spirits, watchers, thrones, dominions, principalities, authorities, and powers. And so we see even though the name angel is a catch-all, there's multiple names that angels are given which denote different things. And so thinking of angels, there's three names, particular types of angels that we are told about in the Bible. Does anyone know the three types of angels that we are referenced or told about in the Old and New Testaments? There's the cute little ones. See the fact that I'm saying that, right? Yeah, right? We're actually not little cute, little, fat, chubby babies, okay? 
the cherubim, right? So in Genesis 3.24, this is, so this, remember our picture of the cherubim is a cute baby angel. In Genesis 3.24, picture that angel in your head and, and listen to the sentence and see if it makes sense. So he drove man out. And at the east of the garden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So right away, we have a huge problem in the sense of we think cherubim, oh, it's a cute little baby angel. And God's like, no, it's the one actually guarding the Garden of Eden. And if you were to go approach it, it would kill you with a flaming sword. Okay. So we get the cherubim. Then we have uh, another version of an angel called a seraphim, right? Now, Isaiah 6 Chapters two and, or chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, it says, the, fair, the seraphim stood above him, talking about God, having each six wings, which two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another, said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so there's even debate within Christendom if those wings are literal wings or if they're uh, Their metaphors and sense of how holy God is, they have to cover themselves up because of his holiness radiating from heaven. And then lastly, in Revelation chapter 4, 7 through 8, they don't even get a particular name. They're just called the living creatures. So Revelation 4, 7, 8, John's writing about what he sees and he writes about these creatures that he sees. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature was like a calf, and the third creature had a face that was like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like that of a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. And so here again we see another picture of angels that is showing us the glory of God, showing us that there are creatures in the spiritual realm that God has created for particular positions, so to speak, here with the living creatures, to honor and adore Him. But if you notice, the three of them have different roles, different duties. And so our next thing we want to think about is that in the angel world, there is rank and order. And so we have these angels doing different things. We have the angels who constantly praise God, we have the cherubs who guard, who have almost like a military presence, so to speak. And so God has order within his kingdom. And so that order we certainly see flows into the physical realm, right, with our laws of physics and uh, so forth. But we want to say it continues even in the spiritual realm. God is not a God of chaos. He is a God of order. So, for example, we have the name of two angels given to us. Does anybody know those two names of the angels? Gabriel and Michael, okay. Michael, what is his main role? Does anybody know? He's the archangel, okay. So we see in different places in Daniel 10, 13 and Revelation 12, he takes on a warrior-like position, right? It says, in fact, in Revelation that he commands his angels, right? So there's this notion there are angels underneath his command, that Michael is an archangel. He has a position above other angels against the dragon, it tells us, okay? So Michael has this symbol or this role, excuse me, not symbol, this role of military might. Gabriel, what's Gabriel famous for doing? The messenger, right? Specifically to who do we think mostly of? Mary and Joseph, 
right? So this is also someone of importance. There are certain people in an organization you trust to get the message across or to fulfill certain duties. This is what Gabriel apparently fulfills in the heavenly realm for God. He is the messenger angel. And so we see these two angels are given particular names, right? So these are created beings. And so it's, it's a little side note that we should take comfort in the fact that God takes time to, na to name things, right? God names his angels. God names us. God watches after us, right? It says he, wa he knows the hairs on our head. And so God takes care of his angels, how much more so us, as we'll look at a little bit later. But just to notice that, that there is rank, there are um, individual angels with certain roles and tasks that they fulfill. Now, question, are angels, can an angel be everywhere at once? No, okay, so we want to make sure we understand that there's only God himself who is everywhere. And so in fact, we want to read a little bit of that. So if you'll turn with me to Daniel chapter 10, we're going to read a couple verses there. Daniel chapter 10, and we're going to read 12 through 14. I'm going to start just a little bit up in verse 10. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel. From the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for twenty-one days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief priests, came to help me, for I have been left there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to understand you are giving of what you will happen to your people in latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. So here we have the angel talking in the term of I was sent, I was here for this amount of time, right? And I had to recall for help. So it's important to remind ourselves that they are limited because again, um, we live in a very new age world, number one. And number two, we live in a Catholic society within Roswell, very Catholic high population, but particularly among the New Age movement, angels are revered, right? So constantly you'll see people reading books on praying to their angels, those kind of things. And we want to remind ourselves as believers that while certainly angels are helpers, they're limited by time and space. And so calling out to an angel would be quite foolish because there may be no angels around, right? That's why we call out on the one true God who is constantly around. He is always there. So, question, how many angels are there? Talking about calling on an angel, how many are there? Do we have a certain number? No, right? But most of us are convinced. I've heard it growing up many times when I was growing up as a kid in the church, right? There's an angel for every believer. Do we have a verse for that? 
No. So we've got to be careful, right? We make assumptions based on the text. And so that's one of the things we want to do this morning is remind ourselves that assumptions can be dangerous because sometimes assumptions become doctrine, which becomes dogma. And so this morning, right, we don't actually know the angels. We know there are thousands upon thousands in the way the Bible talks, right? When Jesus is speaking to Pilate, what does he say he could do? He could call down legion upon legion, right? And he would instantly take over the world. Like it'd be no problem for Jesus to call down legion upon legion of angels. So we certainly know there are a lot of angels, but we want to be careful that therefore we don't assume that means there's one for every person, there's one for every believer, there's two for every person, there's especially two for, um, you know, kids or anything like that. We want to make sure that we are very careful about how we approach that. So certainly we would say, I believe there's a lot of angels, but we don't ever want to get to the point where we make assertions or statements of absoluteness based on that. So those are some of the overviews of what angel is, right? It's a created being in the spiritual realm. It has roles that it fills. There's hierarchy within those roles. We're not even sure what all angels look like or um, do, right? We're going to constantly refer back to this verse, but a verse I would encourage you to learn about all life, particularly about this subject, is Deuteronomy 29, 29. For the secret things belong to the Lord our God, and the things revealed belong to us and to our sons, that we may live by these laws forever. Learn that verse. It's a really helpful verse, right? The secret things belong to the Lord. There are things you're not to know. That drives us crazy, right? We just like knowing things. We don't care if it matters to us. We just want to know the answer. We just want to know the truth. God says, yeah, you got to be careful. That's not actually for you to handle. So as we go through this, I'm going to keep reminding us of that verse, right? So we don't know exactly what all angels do. We have some glimpses, but that is what an angel is. So now let's talk about what they do in relation to humanity. So the first thing I want to point out is that they exercise powerful authority that God has given them as created creatures. And so talking about Jesus in Colossians, it says, He is the image of the visible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And then we get to this issue part here, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So certainly there is a earthly sense of thrones and dominions, but this actually refers more to the unseen spiritual realm. Now this is again an area that has not been clearly made evident to us, but we know that God has assigned angels, his heavenly creatures, responsibilities and tasks and dominions to, com to uh, complete and carry through. If you think about one of the most interesting things that happens to Jesus is when he goes into the desert and what is Satan doing there? He's tempting him with what? With power, right? With authority, with dominion. So it would make no sense if Satan is to tempt Jesus if he has no control in those things, right? So for example, I'm a high school teacher and if, in case you didn't know that, but let's say I said, hey, Tell you what, come down to my car dealership and I'll let you pick out any car you want and you can drive it home today. You would all go, well, that's not true because you don't have a car dealership. You're a teacher. The same can be said about Satan in the sense of his tempting Jesus. It has to have some validity to be tempted with. And so we see that there are powers and dominions that have been placed in 
relation to humanity. God has a created order, a hierarchy with which he governs out. Now we want to remind ourselves certainly he does not need this principalities and dominion being dis distributed, but he so chooses to act this way. And so in 2 Peter 2.11, it even says about the angels, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a revealing judgment against them before the Lord. So in 2 Peter, he gives us a little bit more information. He says, listen, they are mightier and powerful than us currently. And so these are beings of power, dominion, authority in the universe, even though it is unseen. And so since they are beings of a power and authority, they exercise moral judgment over the things God has asked them to rule over. Have you ever stopped to think about that? The angels are moral beings. They're not actually robots. If they're robots, what's the problem then what's, with our theology? If they're robots, what, where does the problem intersect with us? You can't rebel if you're a robot, right? You have to have autonomous moral judgment. And so for Satan to fall, and the angels that fall with him, they have to be moral creatures. And so these are creatures that were able to either fall with Satan or to stay with God. In fact, in Psalm 82, verse 1, it says, God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of rulers. It always blows my mind that God takes time to hear what his creatures think. God doesn't have to delegate with the angels. And yet he does. And even more so, they can see God. God can see them. And yet God delegates. He interacts with humanity, his church. That blows my mind that God humbles himself in that sense to interact with his created order. He doesn't have to, yet he chooses in delight to interact with his creation. So we see in Psalm 82, we've been interacting with these angels, with these rulers over his dominions. So they rule, right? And if they rule, ruling also means to like to protect, right? Do they guard? Do we have such thing as guardian angels? Yeah, we're careful, right? Again, this is one of the things where we can get certain verses that certainly speak to this truth, but before long they become dogma and they become a way of life, right? So we've all seen the little things of like, this is my guardian angel, I put in my card or my guardian angel, like, hey, when I'm driving crazy, you better make sure I don't hit nobody. Um, I've seen those before, right? Or we talk about that. My guardian angel was protecting me. It might be true, but it may not necessarily be true in that sense. So we want to make sure that we're careful in how we, we talk about that. So, for example, we have Psalm 91, which Jesus incidentally refutes. Um, or I'm sorry, that Satan uses against Jesus to try to tempt him to take the authority through Satan. So Psalm 91, 11 through 12 says... For he will give his angels charge concerning you, to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands, that you do not strike your foot against a stone. That's right. So here we have this being used in the temptation of Jesus. But also there's an application to us in that sense. Right? It is messianic, but it certainly still has fulfillment with us. And so as we look through these things, we see that angels are asked to guard us. In fact, let's go to Matthew chapter 18. And let's read a certain section on angels. Matthew chapter 18. And we'll start with verse 1.
At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to him and set him before them and said, Truly I say, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then stumbles himself as this child, he is the great, humbles himself, excuse me, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for him to be, have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to the man that through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pick it out and throw it from you. It'd be better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into fiery hell. See that you do not spies one of these little ones. For I say to you that there are angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. So in verse 10, right, and so I want to lead a little bit into that because the context, right, is Jesus speaking about damnation of those who are um, not actually following Christ, right? They're stumbling blocks. They would rather sin than cut themselves off from their sin. But in 10, we see that, right? Do not despise little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So from verse 10, can we confidently say that God sends angels to protect children? Yes. Can we confidently say that every child has a guardian angel that watches over them? No, right? And so we, we, that's what I mean by we have to be careful. We can't necessarily see that in the text. And God doesn't illuminate that for us, right? Are there an angel for every kid? Maybe. Or maybe it's God says, this angel go here. There's a child in need. There is someone who is in need of my protection. And he sends the angel. We're not sure exactly how verse 10 is carried out pragmatically. But whole angel theologies and books and books and books have been written from this one verse. We have to remind ourselves, be careful when it comes to our reading of the text that we don't overread into it. And so we see here certainly that angels are being used to guard and protect, but that is as much as we get. We don't get the, the logistics of how that is carried out, of how that's played out, of how that works for every single person. Is it only applied to children or how old are the children? Is it to age 18, 13, 12, 10? Like, we don't know any of that. So we got to be careful that we don't make a whole dogma out of little verses like this that point to a general truth, but not a specific truth. And so certainly we can see that they guard in that sense. And then lastly, there's one thing that's important to know, that angels don't marry, right? So the one of the things they do do, right, they guard, they rule over, okay? They worship, as we saw, um, from the cherubims and the seraphims and the created um, creatures, but they don't marry. So they're different in that sense of humanity. They're not up in heaven getting married, having families, right? They are celibate creatures in that regard and not to seek out those things. So that's what they do. That's what they are. So the question now becomes, well, what's our response to angels as Christians? Have you thought about that? If someone says, I think there's an angel that's been visiting me, what's the Christian's response to that? Do we have a response? Hopefully we do. So first off, as we talked about, they are in positions of power, 
But what's the one key thing, the most important, if you had to say the most important difference between an angel and a human, what would it be? Takes place in Genesis, if you need a hint, in the creation. God says, let us make man in our image, right? Angels are not made in the image of God. That's a very, very, very important distinction to know. They're not made in the image of God. Only humanity is made in their image. And so as we saw in 2 Peter, right, they are powerful and mighty, but yet in the resurrection, when all things are set correct and the humans who are in faith with Christ and they have been reborn and given new bodies, it says in 1 Corinthians that they will rule over the angels. So there's this weird dynamic currently under the fallen state of the world where angels are currently above us, so to speak, in power and stature. But in the end of time, when the bride is connected to her, the bridegroom, that will flip. We will rule over the angels with Jesus, our co-heir. And so we never see an angel ruling in that sense as a human does, and more particularly as our example, our brother Jesus does. So rule over them as we see in 1 Corinthians and Hebrews. Okay? And also, angels show us the great mercy of God. Question, is there salvation for angels? No, right? That's important to know. Because in our mind, does that seem really fair? Remember, think about most examples in the Bible. When they, when they interact with an angel, what's their response? It's, it's terror, it's awe, it's amazement, it's blown away, right? If an angel appeared here this morning, we'd probably all remember for the rest of our lives. Be like, that was one of the most crazy things I have ever experienced. But God doesn't save the angels, right? It says in 2 Peter, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them in the hell, committed them to the pits of nether gloom to be kept until the judgment. In Jude 6, it continues this idea and says, the angels that did not keep their positions, but left their proper dwelling, have been kept in him by eternal chains until the day of judgment. God instantly judged a fair amount of those angels who rebelled. It was not a just, oh, darn it, they got away. Some of those angels were immediately cast into hell, awaiting a great judgment. It shows you what fairness actually looks like. Fairness is a holy God instantly judging those who have sinned against him. And by his grace alone to humanity, he does not do that. He extends us mercy, extends us redemption through Christ Jesus. And so angels are a good reminder that God is gracious with us. They didn't have to be loving and merciful towards us. He could have immediately judged our forefather Adam and our forefather mother Eve and that would have been that. And it would have been good and it would have been just for all eternity. Instead he broke with us bread, his son on the cross for us to partake and become fellow heirs with him. So their example for his mercy, their example for us to pray, right, in the sense of um, doing his will. So God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. The angels are carrying out God's will. And so as Christians, we said that this morning, we said the Lord's Prayer, we should be reminded that angels are carrying out God's will constantly, and we're called to be partners with them in that will being fulfilled. As we saw from the seraphim and the created angels, they worship God. 
They constantly worship God. In our lives, angels are to remind us of the worshipness of God and his glory that is revealed to us that we constantly forget to worship. God is constantly worshiped by the angels. And so as we see them being um, use examples of God's mercy and fulfilling God's will and glorifying God, we want to think about them in our daily lives. And so there is something profound that happens when we gather as a church. It's not individualistic worship. It's one of the things that we at this church as the elders were very passionate against happening, right? We don't want you to come on a Sunday morning and have a great individual worship. If you have done that, we honestly feel as a church we failed. It's not about you as an individual. It's about us as a congregation. And in fact, the Bible extends the congregation for much more than the people in this room. It says, who is worshiping with us when we gather? The angels. Think about that. We worship in a unique way that no other religion offers. We worship in the physical now and in the eternal spiritual at the same moment. It is not divided. It is happening at the same moment. So when we take communion, we're praying together. When we sing the doxology, it's not just simply us in this room singing. It is all of heaven proclaiming the glory of God. That is amazing. It talks about the stranger appearing to us, right? In Hebrews 13, 2, a very famous verse on angels, right? Some of you have entertained angels before. It's a reminder that God is calling us to constantly serve him. A reminder that you have been intervened more than you realize. The older I get, the more I appreciate my parents saying things like, you want to be disrespect, you want to be uh, disrespectful or you want to be ungrateful, let me list all the ways I provide for you. The older I get, the more I see my own kids. Like, wow, they don't understand all the things I do for them every day that multiply beyond their understanding. And so often we see that being with God, right? So Hebrews 13, 12, it talks about some of you entertain angels. It's a reminder to us to remember that God is constantly looking out for us. God is constantly sending his angels of mercy to help the church in various points in their lives to build up their relationship with him. And interestingly enough, angels are interested in us, right? We tend to think the other way. We tend to think angels are disinterested or indifferent maybe to you humans, but that's actually not true because they're so amazed with who God is. So turn with me to 1 Peter. We're going to read on the redemption story and angels. First Peter chapter 1, we're going to read verses 10 through 15. As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied to the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in such things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, which into with things into which angels long to look. We often hear, I've heard Colin say it, and it's a true statement, right? We have the greatest story ever told in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're like, we get it. Yeah, we know it's the best story. We get it. Think about how amazing that story is. The angels who spend, from when God created them, have spent eternity with him in his presence, 
are so amazed by the story of Jesus coming in flesh and it playing out and saving us from sin. Right? They look into these things. They want to know about this relationship because it's so amazing. They can't believe that God has done this. I mean, it's amazing to think about that. They're in his presence, and yet they're like, God, what you're doing on earth to humanity is amazing. It is one of the greatest things we have ever seen. That's amazing. That is fascinating that we are part of one of the best stories ever told, that the spiritual realm longs to watch it unfold, and we so often are just indifferent to God's unveiling of his love for us. So we're to see that they, how they involve with us, right? How to worship, those things. But I want to give a small warning because I think it's appropriate to know. In Galatians 1.8, it says to not receive what? A different gospel from what? From even an angel. So this is really mind-blowing because I'm saying if an angel appeared to us this morning and stood in the middle of the room, it would be very hard for us to override that experience because it would be that profound. So my point being is, is many different religions and cults, so for example, like Mormons, right? Joseph Smith had an angel appear to him. That would be a profound experience. So I'm just going to argue for a moment's sake. Let's say Joseph Smith really did have an angel appear to him. A real angel appeared to Joseph Smith doesn't change the fact that Paul says you are to disregard the message if it goes against the truth. But we want to remind ourselves, right, that people can see these things. These things can be experienced, and it does not validate the experience. So we're told again in uh, 2 Corinthians that Satan appears as the angel of light. So angels can appear to us. They can be beautiful. They can be filled of love and warmth and all those spiritual key words and buzz phrases. But if they're not proclaiming the gospel of Christ, we're to disregard that experience. So we remind ourselves of that, that it is serious business when it comes to angels, that they are that currently in the spiritual realm powerful that it can influence you to leave the truth for something else, right? This happens constantly if we're not careful. Think about in 1 Timothy, it says, tickling ears want the doctrine of demons, right? That angels can speak into our lives and we will believe them even if it leads us astray. And so as we've touched on a little bit, right, there is no need to worship to or pray or to seek them out. I think one of the best verses I would encourage you to memorize as well is 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and there is one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. Right? We don't need an angel to mediate on our behalf. We don't need to pray to an angel to speak to God for us. We have the greatest mediator, Christ Jesus, God himself, to talk to, to speak to, to worship to, and to seek out. So just like we talked about, angels aren't everywhere, but we actually should draw comfort because God is everywhere. Therefore, the Spirit is within us who believe, so we can call out to God directly in our moments of need or crisis or joy. To close, to tie this all up, I want you to turn with me. We're going to read Acts chapter 23 as a stark warning, I think, for where we find ourselves today in 2021. So if you'll please turn with me to Acts chapter 23. 
So the context, Paul is seized. Paul's brought before the Jewish council. And he's asked to defend his beliefs in Christ Jesus. So follow with me as we read 1 through 10. And then we'll talk about it. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try, to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystander said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was your high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler or your people. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other group Pharisees, Paul began crying out to the council, Brethren, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And as he said this, there was occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and began to argue heedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoke to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and, be, and bring him into the barracks. We have here two groups that we know don't make it in the end. The Sadducees and the Pharisees aren't the good guys in the story. But looking at these two groups, we see very distinct difference between them. In verse 8, the Sadducees didn't believe in what? Angels, or the spirit, or the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in the spiritual realm. They believed this is what you see, this is what you have. I think in 2021, there's a lot of us who operate under those assumptions as believers. Yeah, there's God. Yeah, we know there's angels. Right? But we live as if none of that actually is going on. We live as if the spiritual realm does not even exist. Lots of Christians live if this is all there is, this is all I'm going to focus on. We're not to be like them. But notice, who's the other group in the, in the council here? The Pharisees. Do they believe in the spiritual realm? Yes. Are they going to make it? No. Right? So my point being is this. Is in 2021, as we think about spiritual beings, and we think about spirituality in regards to the spiritual realm, the question this morning is, are you living as someone who knows these things to be true? and found in Christ Jesus. Because constantly we, we live in a world that either denies all spirituality or says all spirituality is good. We need to be like Paul and believe in the one true God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, who has dominion over the angels and not be like someone who believes there are no angels or instead worships the spiritualness of the age of the spirit.